activities. Well, let's look at the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Last week, we talked about the waiting game, the waiting game. And certainly, we talked about how, you know, these disciples were waiting for the Holy Spirit of God to come. They had heard the promise. They had heard what God had said about the Holy Spirit coming, and they were waiting. And they knew they were supposed to go out and be witnesses. But God was working in their lives to provide what they needed so that they could go and be the witnesses that they should be. So basically, 50 days on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover, you have the Holy Spirit's coming. So you can kind of put this together. Here you are, uh, basically three days after the Passover event, the resurrection, then 40 days that uh, Jesus is here in this ministry before he ascends to heaven, and then you have approximately a week before the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples. So in that week, they were waiting. And remember last week, we talked about how they were in the waiting game, if you will. They were just there. They were together. They were studying the scripture together. They were praying together. They were uh, trying to make preparation together. I mean, it was a waiting moment for them. And God said, just hold on, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit into your life. So look in chapter 2, verse 1. We have this, this monumental event in the life of the church. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now look at this. They had been waiting. They had heard the Holy Spirit was coming. And in chapter 2, we see that the Spirit is here. The Spirit comes. Now look. I'm not sure that they would have totally grasped how the Holy Spirit was going to come. I, I'm not sure that week when they were waiting and thinking about it, that they, they could fully grasp this event, what the Holy Spirit was going to do, how he was going to come, and how he was going to manifest himself. I mean, that week, can, I mean, come on, think about it with me a moment. If you would have been there that week, and if you would have been one of the 12 or maybe one of the 120, and you would have been praying, thinking together, and talking about how the Holy Spirit would come, most of you probably would not have thought of it in terms of, okay, the Holy Spirit's going to come, there are going to be this, these elements of fire, there's going to be tongues. I mean, you wouldn't really thought that was going to happen, right? The Spirit is going to come, and He's going to demonstrate Himself in the lives of the believers, but it is probably going to violate every expectation they had had up until that point. But get this. When the Holy Spirit comes in their lives, nobody doubts whether or not he's there. I mean, everybody's going to know the Holy Spirit is here. And he comes in power. And the power is manifest in their lives. Notice what it says. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. In other words, here they are, perhaps in an upper room or in just a room in a house, and all of a sudden this great sound, this great wind 
comes into the room. Some people describe it as though it was a tornadic type of event, or at least a sound, that it was a violent type of sound that had come in and had caught the attention of the believers. It would catch our attention, huh? Let's say tonight, all of a sudden, we heard such uh, a roaring sound in this place. I know most of you would say, I'm committed to the Scripture. I'm committed to hear Brother Reggie, Dr. Reggie preach, and I'm just going to stand here. I'm not paying attention to any of that. I'm not going to walk out and see what it is. Right? Wrong. If you heard something that brought that kind of noise, it would certainly gain your attention. And you would probably go and try to find out what was happening. And here, it is this violent type of wind, this rushing wind, or the sound of it at least, that comes in. And then, if that's not strange enough, notice what it says in verse 3. It says, There appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. Now, there, he's given a description as much as he can here, okay? Dr. Luke, it's kind of like us. When God does certain things, it's hard to describe what God is doing. And, and Dr. Luke is trying to give us the best description he can of what happened. And he said it looked like these tongues of fire, if you will, that came and sat upon each one of those disciples. Well, if the wind had not gotten your attention, the tongues of fire certainly would have. You can imagine the response at that moment. And then it says that all of a sudden they're filled with the Spirit and they begin to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So I say again to you, when you read these verses, you have no doubt in your mind that the Holy Spirit has come. Whether it's the sound, whether it's the, the symbol of a fiery tongue, or whether it's the gift of tongues themselves, you know that the Holy Spirit has come, and He has come with, um, with power. There is no mistaking it. Now listen, I hear people from time to time talk about, we need another Pentecost. Now, Pentecost was that moment. It was a feast of weeks. It was the feast of the harvest as they celebrated the wheat harvest, the barley harvest, and they were able to celebrate it. They were celebrating the end gathering here certainly they were celebrating the end gathering and the spirit of god came and and it was an awesome event but when i hear people sometimes say we need another pentecost i want to say to to them there is only one pentecost okay there is only one pentecost the holy spirit has already come into our lives we don't need him to descend again the holy spirit is here he is here for his church today. Now, if people are referring to we need the power of the Holy Spirit manifest as he did in, in Pentecost, that may be another thing. There are days that I long to see the manifestation of the Holy Spirit's power. That's different than knowing that the Holy Spirit's power is among us. We, we know that. It doesn't matter how much you feel or how bad you feel or anything like that. I can guarantee you if you're a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you. That's what the Scripture teaches us, okay? It doesn't matter about your emotion at the moment. If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit's in you, and the power of God is in you. But there are moments when we do pray that we would see 
the manifestation of God's power. Now, I'm not saying again that we experience it necessarily like they did at Pentecost, okay? Pentecost was unique. It was different. It was, it was the Holy Spirit of God coming upon the disciples in this initial event to empower them to be about God's mission. It was a unique event. When people try to try to bring similarities to, the, to Pentecost and talk about it in their churches about how we need another Pentecost, most people might talk about tongues, and that's another issue, and we're going to talk about in a few weeks. So you got to come, right? You don't want to miss that one, do you? I'm not going to tell you when because I know you. You kind of jet out for a little while and then come back. We're going to talk about tongues and what they mean, especially uh, as we read on over and how it comes into salvation. But there are people that will take verses like this and say, See, if the Holy Spirit's still upon you, then you'll speak in tongues just as the early disciples did. Again, this is a unique individual moment in the life of the church because they would say that, but they wouldn't say there has to be a tornadic wind coming into the room or that there should be fire represented above people's heads. They don't say that, do they? They only pick and choose. At that point, what they believe affects salvation. So notice this is a unique, uh, empowered event as the Holy Spirit comes, fills the disciples, and every one of them knows, every one of them knows that God has empowered them now to go and fulfill their task. Notice verse 5, it says, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. There were all these people. It actually, let, let's continue on. Verse 7, it says, Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. He says there are a lot of people, a lot of Jews at this point <clears throat> that are here. They've gathered, perhaps some of them have gathered for the Pentecost, for this great um, gathering in festival that they were celebrating. All of them were here. You have some that had been who had been dispersed through the kingdom, that maybe they were back for this particular festival. They were there to celebrate. And it says, when they heard what was going on, they came to investigate. Notice it says they were of the Jewish background, but they probably had some Baptists in them already because they were curious about what was happening down the street and they wanted to find out. So they went down the street. They were trying to see what was happening, maybe the sound or maybe... The, the people, as they were speaking in different languages, they came down to hear what was said. And it says in verse 7, notice, they were amazed and marveled, saying to one another, are not all these Galileans? And yet we're hearing them in our own language. Again, we're going to talk about tongues and speaking in tongues later on. But note in this event in particular, the tongue was a language that was understood in this passage by other individuals. Some people believe it was a gift of the tongue. Some people believe it was a gift of hearing. 
How God did it, I don't exactly know. But I do know this. God demonstrated his power in using a bunch of Galileans to speak. And when they spoke, these Jews from all over the world were able to hear what they had to say. The power of God. Listen to me. If God can take a bunch of ordinary Galileans and he can, he can use their words to speak and to speak so that people from all over the kingdom could hear and understand, then we have a powerful God that can work in our lives to not only promote the gospel, but to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and allow it to take seed in these different areas. Let me remind you that while the uniqueness of Pentecost is evident, the power of Pentecost continues on in our lives. If God can do that, shouldn't we get excited about what God can do as we take the gospel? That this is the Holy Spirit. Now notice, there were some people that couldn't believe this. In verse 12 it says, So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. In other words, when they heard this, they were like, what's going on? Some people said, well, they're drunk. I mean, that's what's happening. They're drunk. They're babbling. We, we can't all explain it, but they're already enjoying the festival. Let's say it that way. Verse 14, I love the way Peter addresses the people here. Because he begins, in some sense, with a humorous type of statement. Notice he's standing up with the eleven. He raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Notice what he says. We're not drunk. It's nine o'clock in the morning. Most of us... Most people don't get drunk by 9 in the morning. I know that they'll have festivals, and it will be uh, quite a celebration around here. And it probably will be this evening. A lot of other people you'll see around here drunk. But it is 9 a.m. in the morning, he says. The, we are not drunk, as you suppose. Verse 16. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit, pour out of my spirit on the whole flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He quotes from the prophet Joel. Joel, who had written at a time when he was speaking of a, a plague. He was <clears throat> promising the nation of Israel that there would be a better day that would be coming. That God would somehow restore the nation. Peter writes and says, in some effects... This prophecy has been fulfilled before you and is being fulfilled at this moment. Because as God said in those last days, 
And when you read the New Testament, last days often refers to Jesus' ascension until he's until his coming. I know that's a large area, but last days can really speak. Paul could write and he could say, we're in the last days during his time. During our time, we could say, we're in the last days. And he says, here, Peter does, that God says, in those moments, I'm going to pour my spirit out upon all flesh. And there were even those in Israel that believed that the spirit was going to come, not just upon the nation, but upon the world itself. He says, and this is what you've seen. God pouring out his spirit among his people, and even others who have come. And he says, it was promised that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Even here, Peter reminds those who will be listening, those of Jewish background, that this message will go to all who will believe on the Lord, those who will trust him. It will go to all. It's almost like God is beginning to unite the human race once again. And I won't press it too far, but I do remember as I sat in seminary classes and studies about how Acts 2 almost shows you the coming together, coming together or the reversal of Babel, if you will. Remember at Babel what happened? You remember the people would not spread like God had told them to. And then before you know it, They've set themselves up in pride and tried to exalt themselves. And God said, you know what we're going to do here? We're going to confuse their language. We're going to send them out. We're going to spread them out, confuse their language. And here, it's like God is beginning now to kind of restore the people. It's like bringing them together where that people can hear as they speak. They hear like the language almost brought together. And here he's providing a salvation for his people. And he says, Joel had it right when he said that the Spirit would be poured out. Verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Listen to the message he gives. It's a good sermon. Most of you would like it because it was a short sermon. I mean, it was an effective sermon also. When you hear what Peter has to say. My high school uh, principal, I'm a high school Bible teacher. He outlined the sermon in the following way. God sent him. You killed him. God raised him. God sent him. And notice here, he talks about this. That it was of God. This was not uh, just um, an accident. It was not just something that just kind of happened. It was of God. God had purposed it. God had planned it. God had provided salvation. God had sent Christ. And he was attested by his own miracles. Look at his power, Peter says. His miracles and the wonders and everything that he did attested to who he was, that he was the Messiah. He says, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. 
And then he says, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. This was the earliest preaching of the disciples. That Jesus Christ was from God, sent by God, attested by the miracles, by the prophecies. He came, he died on the cross, he was resurrected the third day in the great plan of God so that he might provide salvation. Even David had spoken of him in this messianic psalm. Look in verse 25. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of your life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, Peter said, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne he foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ that his soul was not left in Hades nor did his flesh see corruption this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the father the promise of the Holy Spirit he poured out this which you now see and hear for David did not ascend into the heavens but he says himself the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Hear what he says. He says, this is the God that was raised up. And he is greater even than King David himself. And most of us, most of us can't really probably um, get that in what we're trying to think about in David and how great he is. I mean, we can't really process it all. But go to Israel today. Some of you have been there, and you'll see everywhere references to David, to King David. I, I went over, uh, I guess the last time I was over there, we were there two or three years ago, and you'll go into the city of David, you'll go into different places. I mean, everything's named after David. Even to this day, they revere David. And here, listen to what Peter is saying. There's a greater one than David that I'm prophesying to you about. David actually spoke about him. Even before David really grasped all that he was talking about, he was talking about Jesus and how he would be resurrected in power. He says, This is the Lord that I am speaking to you about now. He is the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies and promises. He is the Davidic king that was coming to sit on his rightful throne, he says. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He said, just know, this God that was crucified, this Jesus that was crucified, he was both Lord and he was the Lord and he was the Messiah that was sent for Israel. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, 
they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And look at this. You saw the power of the Holy Spirit come on Pentecost. You saw the purpose of the Holy Spirit manifest as Peter's preaching and sharing. And now you see the Holy Spirit working in individuals' hearts and lives as the message is being proclaimed. And they're asking questions now like, what are we supposed to do? They have experienced conviction. They were cut to the heart. What are we supposed to do? The Holy Spirit's work now convicting individuals. Let me just say this as we get ready to close in a moment. I believe the Holy Spirit still has the power to bring conviction upon people's lives. Now, I believe still in invitations, okay? There are some that today we're not giving public invitations. You know, it's kind of it's a different story in some churches now. I still believe in giving invitations. But during invitations, I don't believe I have to try to manipulate people or just play on people or get people to come. I don't think I have to do that. Why? Because I believe the Holy Spirit is the one that brings true conviction in a person's life. If I can talk somebody into doing something, somebody else can talk them out of doing that. But if the Holy Spirit truly brings conviction upon a person's life and they respond in this kind of way that they have been cut to the heart and they want to know, what should I do after hearing the message? If they respond because of the true Holy Spirit's conviction in their life, then that is a change that will take place and a change that will last for eternity. Because salvation does not just begin with me and the word that I speak. Salvation begins as the Holy Spirit works in an individual's life as he takes the message that I proclaim, the message of the good news of Jesus Christ, and he plants it in a person's life, and they respond by that power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They, re they respond, and they give their life to Christ. I still believe he can do that. Some people would say, yeah, but look at every Sunday when you give the invitation and how many people are here? Maybe only two or three would come. Or maybe nobody comes. That doesn't mean that we stop giving invitations. It doesn't mean we stop believing in God working in people's lives. Because you know what? There are some people who will come. And there will be days when we will see that Holy Spirit's power and work. I believe He's working every week when we come together. Just to be quite honest with you. Sometimes we go away and we make our own decisions. But there are days when through the Holy Spirit's conviction and power, there are people who come and place their faith in Christ. And here we have this, what shall we do? And I love this, verse 38, Peter said to them, repent. I heard a good preacher preaching on repentance. Did, did you hear that? Did you hear a good sermon? Y'all got something. Y'all got to help me out here. Y'all stressing me sometimes. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. 
Repent. Follow the Lord and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now, I know what some of my brethren, there are some folks out there in other denominations. I grew up with them. Some were in my family. said, see, Reggie, Acts 2.38 says, repent and be baptized, and then you'll be forgiven of your sins. You got to be baptized. I told you, Reggie. I've heard that all of my life. No other verse, first of all, no other verse I find in the New Testament even hints that baptism saves you. Okay? No other verse really hints that baptism saves you. Anywhere else that I look. It's by faith through grace alone that we're saved. Not any kind of external work. Now, baptism is important. It is important. Because it displays to others what Jesus Christ has done inwardly in our hearts and lives. Well, Brother Reggie, how in the world do you explain this one in 238? Because it sounds like you've got to be baptized for the remission of sins. Well, one, understanding that I, I don't see any other verses in the New Testament that to me really hints that baptism is a part of salvation. I have to come to this and say, well, how does this square with the rest of Scripture? And I have to study it. And I notice that that little word for, for the remission of sins, it's a little preposition in the Greek. I remember Dr. Douglas Bain at Blue Mountain College writing that little preposition on the board. It looked like a little E, a little I, and a little S, ice. You didn't know we knew Greek in North Mississippi, did you? He wrote it on the board. And I went to my lexicon after hearing him talk about it and it can be translated for it can be translated upon it can be translated on the basis of and I began to look at it and study it and realize that it can read something like this repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ on the basis of your forgiveness of sins in other words I am baptized because I have been forgiven of my sins. On the basis that I'm saved, I'm baptized. Repentance, faith, trust, these are the key determinants of salvation. I know we'll get there, but let me just say this. In Acts chapter 16, it is the only time in all of the New Testament, write this, the only time in all of the New Testament where salvation where somebody directly says, what must I do to be saved? Now, that does not mean that there aren't other areas that teach us about salvation. I'm just saying to you, there's only one place that I find where it says, what must I do to be saved? It was the Philippian jailer. And remember what they told him? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. They, didn't, they had an opportunity to say, you've got to believe and be baptized. They didn't say that. Now, was he baptized? Absolutely. As he followed the Lord, as he responded to that forgiveness in his life. But in that one place where the question is directly asked, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then as Peter finishes his message, he just simply says again, as you come to that salvation... As you come to that life in Christ, you will receive the gift. The gift of what? The Holy Spirit. 
The same gift that the disciples had. The same gift for each and every believer. For the promise, the Holy Spirit is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. The Holy Spirit in His power is is evident in their lives. What a day. What a day. The day of Pentecost. The Spirit is here in power and in purpose. He comes and it is unmistakable. They know He's there. He comes and He leads them to the purpose that they were called to. What was the purpose? To be witnesses of Him. First in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what they went out fulfilling their purpose. Peter standing on behalf of the apostles. He preaches the basic message. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He is the one that has been sent by God. Who has been crucified. Who has been resurrected. He is the one that's come. To offer salvation to individuals. And then the Holy Spirit worked still. By leading these individuals. To faith and trust. In Christ. I'm proud I'm not in this alone. I'm proud I don't have to get up on Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon. And just depend upon my own strength. To be able to share and to be able to see people respond. I'm proud I don't have to do that. I'm proud that the Holy Spirit is still here. Empowering me, empowering you, empowering each and every one of us. To be able to speak the good news of Christ to others. You and I are responsible for fulfilling the purpose God, the Holy Spirit, is responsible for working in people's lives and bringing ultimate salvation to them. I pray that we are faithful because I know this. He is always faithful to provide what we need as we fulfill our purpose.